0: Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Today I'm speaking with Rebecca Lemon. Rebecca Lemon is a professor of English at the University of Southern California. She teaches and researches English Renaissance literature with particular interests in Shakespeare, law and political philosophy. The author of three books and two edited collections, she received a BA from Smith College and received a Devine Fellowship to attend Cambridge University. She then earned a master's from Cambridge and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her work has been supported by fellowships at the University of Warwick in England, at the Stanford Humanities Center, and at the Huntington Library. Professor Rebecca Lemon, thank you so much for talking with me.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: So I wanted to give my listeners just a, a quick, I guess, summary of like how I came to your class. So... In my senior year of college, I was studying jazz music at USC, and I never had a formal theater training. So I had been acting in L.A. for years, but I never you know, went to theater school. And I, <laughs> it's always something that like, I feel like I've done vicariously through others, whether it's just like trying to read something or just trying to even look at other class like syllabi and just see, like, oh, what's it like to be in theater school? But I knew that when I was in college, one of those things I desperately wanted to do was take a Shakespeare class. And so I couldn't take one in the theater school because there were all kinds of special clearances I had to get. But then I saw your course, which was Shakespeare and his Times, which was English 230. Was that the class code?
1: Yes, 230. Well remembered.
0: (laughs) So I was like, okay, I'll definitely take that. And so I was in my second semester. I was taking your course. And around the same time, two things were happening, which I felt like were very serendipitous. So I was in the concert jazz orchestra at USC And we were playing a bunch of Duke Ellington music. And one piece we played was called Such Sweet Thunder, which is from Duke Ellington's, he has like a 12 piece suite and it was all based on various Shakespeare uh, plays. And so like, there's some tracks in there. There was, uh, we also played the Star-Crossed Lovers, um, but there's a lot of really fun ones like Lady Mac, which I find is really (laughs) a a nice play on Lady Macbeth. Sonnet to Hank Sank.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Henry
0: V, yeah. That's right. So that was just a funny little coincidence. And then at the same time, I was also writing a play for my senior project. And my play, like the themes were kind of on, it was really talking about this man who fell in love with uh, a woman. And they're both in college. And as he becomes the person that she goes to for relationship advice, he tries to uh, tell her, like, don't be with these other men, be with me instead and he ends up being one of those bad guys that he's telling her not to be with. Mm. And we were reading Othello around that time, and there was a scene between Desdemona and Emilia, which when I read it, I was just stunned because it fits so nicely with my theme. So if you'll have me for a minute, I wanted to read the monologue from my own play, if that's all right with you.
1: Yeah, I I know, I can't wait to hear it.
0: (laughs) I'll read just the beginning part of it. So my character's name is, is Othman, And this is right in the middle of the play. And he says, In Shakespeare's Othello, a woman asks, Dost thou in conscience think That there be women do abuse their husbands? And another woman replies, It is their husbands' fault if wives do fall. Though we have some grace, yet we have some revenge. Let them use us well, else let them know The ills we do Their ills instruct us so. Powerful stuff. Here's what I want to know. Who was that first guy that did those ills? He sees a girl, falls for her in such a way as men do, and says to himself, the only way I can have her is to rob her of her humanity, make her into an object that exists solely for my pleasure, and then mistreat her as men do, because fuck it, I'm entitled to that shit. Who was that guy? And who was the girl, the first woman who didn't just take that? Who said, I've had enough, and it's time to make this son of a bitch feel some pain, some jealousy, some loss, some insecurity. He deserves it. And don't, don't get me wrong, he, he does deserve it. I'm not saying he doesn't. Hell, I'm so pissed off at that guy, I have revenge too. And this thin-framed, barely five foot 5 Indian American college student would take his fist and pummel that misogynistic bastard until I ended him or at least until my puny hand gave out. He deserves it. He deserves that revenge. But do I? So that's sort of the beginning of the monologue. That's kind of the the concept of it, was just that when I read this in our class, I just thought I couldn't think of a better description of, I guess what I would call like feminist rage. Like this seems to me like the place where it's like, the ills they, the ills we do, their ills instruct us so, and so I was like, wow, what an interesting way of of putting that. That if women mistreat men, it's because men have taught them how to do it. Uh, and when I saw this, I I was like, this is immediately is going to go in my play because it then his question, I think in a very selfish kind of self-absorbed way, he asks, well, sure, maybe other men deserve that revenge, but why do I, if I'm a nice guy? Uh, so that was kind of where I was sort of going on that in a very twisted kind of way, <laughs> uh, with, with hopefully real purpose.
1: I think it's a question that Shakespeare re- returns to or plays with actually even earlier in, you may remember in Merchant of Venice, there's a speech that Shylock gives that is actually very much like Amelia's speech, which is, if you prick us, do we not bleed? you know, if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? And it's about the relationship between Christians and Jews in that play. But mm. it's also about the experience of being kind of categorized and, um, and discriminated against, being made to feel less than. So this is something that Shylock is kind of wrestling with. But it's certainly what, as you really powerfully put it, that Amelia is talking about and as you know from our conversations on Othello in that class like one of the things there's so many things that are very haunting and troubling about Othello but one of them is that the play gives us three women Bianca uh Amelia and Desdemona and these are three very very different women Bianca is a prostitute Amelia is is Isiago's wife who has as you say in the speech that you just read she has quite a kind of earthy understanding of like I will get mine, my own back. And then there's Desdemona, who seems completely, at least initially, incapable of thinking ill of any of the men around her, including Iago, who is leading her horribly astray. And yet, despite the difference between these three women, they are all called, at different points in the play, whore. And so it's clear that this is a play that's also looking at what happens when you have a kind of diversity of humanity that is reduced to a category. And what happens when that category pushes back, you know, whether it's women or whether it's Shylock and the Jewish community to the extent it exists in The Merchant of Venice?
0: Hmm, Yeah, I think that I was also very moved by the fact that, you know, Othello ultimately kills Desdemona, his wife. And it's very... I mean, in kind of like a misogynistic just sort of fit because he assumes that she was, uh, you know, had there was some infidelity there between her and I'm forgetting Cassio. Right. And and so then he just basically kills her, which is like extremely problematic in in a lot of ways.
1: Well, and the thing that Iago plays on there is. Othello's possible sense of himself as an outsider. So, so Iago says, I know these Venetian women well. This is what they do. They, they um, turn tricks behind their husband's back. And so, no, it's true that, that Othello has this kind of, as you say, misogynistic fit. He also has to be kind of talked into that fit mm-hmm. by Iago claiming he knows the conventions better or he knows Venetian women better. Um, then say, Othello does, which we know as the spectators is untrue, but it's haunting. It's a way of manipulating people around cultural scripts, which is another thing I think Shakespeare's very interested in. How do people kind of rely on tropes or themes or conventions to manipulate other people by saying, this is the insider rule on this one? You know, Richard III says that to his brother Clarence, like, this is how it is when we're um, when women take power right like here here we are we're on the outside of course richard's like the consummate insider killing everybody else in the play <laughs> you know?
0: yeah right I mean, yeah it's right. like for me when i when i read this i i thought it at least the connection i was trying to make in my play was that it seemed very similar to or at least what i saw as like fraternity culture in college mm. just someone who hasn't maybe had as much experience with women who wants to be with a girl in college Talks to his other guy friends who tell him, oh, well, like this, these are the kinds of things you should be doing if you're trying to get with this girl. And this, these are the kinds of things you should do. And it's kind of like, well, aren't those the wrong things? Does, that just seems from the outside like that that's not right. But it's like, oh, no, that's just how it is. And so the protagonist in my play kind of gets wooed into that, that, oh, if I want, if I want to get what I want, I have to start acting like them or I have to do something different than who I am. And I think that when I read that, I was just like, oh, wow, this fits. It fits so perfectly that I couldn't help but just literally put it in into the play.
1: No, exactly. It's like you've created a very Shakespearean dilemma. It's like, how, how is this person going to navigate? And then saying like, wait a minute, okay, maybe those guys over there do deserve revenge, but, but what about me? Like, where do I stand? I mean, I think that's a very poignant question you were asking.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate that. I mean, it was just amazing, I think, my senior year to sort of end up with this class. I was really proud of myself, actually, for taking this class at the same time I was writing a play because it felt like I was, as I was writing, I was getting the inspiration, you know, the next day from reading Shakespeare. So it was very, very fun. But anyway, so that's how I I got to your class. And that's sort of how I experienced your class was through the other work that I was doing. Um, But I guess I, I wanted to start off as I do with with all of my guests, in just asking you how you got to studying Shakespeare and studying the Renaissance as a period. I think to a lot of my listeners who may be actors and, you know, Hollywood or jazz musicians or whoever else, that it just seems like a very niche subject. Like, how would you end up there specifically?
1: (laughs) Okay, so I'm looking at the clock, so I don't take too long with this answer, (laughs) because it's not a very clear route. And I will say that you know, my time at Cambridge taught me sort of belatedly that there are many people in the world that have clear roots from the beginning. And they just thought, I will be a Shakespearean. Like, this is what I'm doing. Well, that was not the case for me. I mean, first of all, I went to college and I was initially a math major. And wow. um, and then when I did really fall in love, I always loved reading and I was an avid reader and, and writer. But sometimes the things that come really easily to you are not the ones, at least for me, that I kind of would take up. So I, I guess I just felt like it was something that always gave me so much pleasure. It was kind of a guilty thing to make as my career path. Mm. <laughs> um, I got into grad school doing feminist theory. And I had been told, like, the best place to go in the country for feminist theory was Madison. And so that's where I went. And then I took, just oddly, a Shakespeare seminar with the person who's like my advisor and now very close friend, Suzanne Wofford, who's just a wonderful professor. But there was something about the way that she taught Shakespeare that basically said there is room for everybody at the table. And you know what? I still feel this, like I teach that 230 lecture. I have business administration majors. I have electrical engineering majors. I have, everybody comes to that class. You know, obviously people from Thornton like you, people from drama. And I love that about Shakespeare, that it becomes a place where I could talk to so many people about this material and, and it just made me think, you know, this is a really exciting place to be an academic because it's so not the kind of ivory tower version of like, I study Finnegan's Wake, which a certain tiny percentage of the population has read, like no offense to Finnegan's Wake scholars.
0: <laughs> yes. But
1: um, there's something that I think kind of keeps me grounded about working on Shakespeare because... There's always going to be that person in line at Starbucks who's like, oh, or, you know, or whatever your favorite coffee shop is. Um, (laughs) uh, Mine happens to be Monati's in in Culver City. But anyway, whatever your favorite coffee shop is, you know, there'll be that person who's like, but did he really write those plays? And it's like, I have to have a gut check and I have to be like, you know, (laughs) kind in my answer. And I think that's a really nice way of inhabiting the world of of realizing, like, what I call my specialty is actually everybody has purchase on it. I like that.
0: Uh, that's so interesting. It's actually less niche than other subjects in English. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Wow. I didn't think of it like that.
1: Well, look, I'm maybe my colleagues would say their stuff is equally kind of open to every, But it's the fact of, like... I can have a theory of Richard the Third. say. I have a really, you know, I have a working theory of it. And then guess what? It's performed by somebody locally and I go and it like pushes on my theory. And so it just feels like it's a constant dialogue with the world around this material. And so anyway, that's, I just, I really fell in love with Shakespeare through this class and then going to England and being part of the world over there with, um, when I was at the University of Warwick, I I was also affiliated with the Shakespeare Institute and I got all these free tickets to go to the RSC Productions. Oh. And I, I got to kind of work with just a vast range of... There's so many ways of doing Shakespeare that, you know, there are people who are into, like, how many beds would there have been on the stage? And what kind of bed would the company have owned? And then there are other people who are, like, interested in obviously shakespeare in film or there're a million ways of navigating shakespeare and i think we'll get to that when you ask about like shakespeare in the canon later on maybe
0: so i wanted to also i guess get a little bit of background on shakespeare in his own time i in terms of like how popular he was in his time while he was still alive i think now in in covid everyone brings up the fact that he wrote lear in the middle of a pandemic so I'm just interested to to sort of hear about like the artistic life during his time, during, you know, Elizabethan England and all of that.
1: All right. Well, yeah, I hope I can do justice to it because it's this is a super rich topic. So I think one of the things that, that I might just start with because of your really fantastic art in all its forms, I just love the title. I love the concept of that kind of synchronicity of different art forms all speaking to each other. And I guess I'll say that, In the generation, say, right before Shakespeare in Europe, in Italy particularly, where you have people like Michelangelo, Leonardo, who are sculpting and painting, they are working in in ways that I think now would be considered very interdisciplinary, so that you have people who are drawing on recent advancements in math or in science in anatomy right so this is the period of time when people first begin to for example do anatomy drawings take the body apart and see what's in it which seems like a kind of obvious concept if you're studying medicine that you may actually want to know what makes the body tick but you know this is a a fairly new-ish or revived practice and because that's the renaissance is the rebirth of the classics and so you have these fields like translation, translation of, um, of Plato, of Aristotle, kind of coming into contact with new math and new science and anatomy, coming into then life through these very sculptural things like the David or the Sistine Chapel. And so I think of, of art in that time as being something that has a kind of a limb in a variety of other fields. And that's one of the things that I think is part of Shakespeare too, in a different way. So I, for example, have a colleague who's writing about math and Shakespeare, or I have my book that's addiction in Shakespeare that's kind of about the rise of the empirical method and, and science in Shakespeare. But then you have actually physically in the theater itself, you have this, these multiple art forms of dance, of music, of then the, the kind of theatrical staging. So that one of the things people will say is the production company might be very spontaneous in how it navigated the script. So that if, for example, Will Kemp was doing a dance or a jig and people loved it, he might just keep going. Um, Or if they had a song, they might keep singing it or they might add another song. But those songs are a very big part of the production. So like Twelfth Night has just gorgeous, lush songs. And the Willow song in Othello is a really key moment. And so, again, I think this is an art form that draws attention to the power of other arts to move us. Like when Shakespeare wants to move us, he might paint a, a tableau for us like Ophelia kind of melting into the water in that scene that Gertrude paints of her death but he so that's a painting moment or we might have like the tableau of Shakespeare um, of Hamlet with Yorick's skull so that's another painting moment but then he might have sound moments like I'm saying with the songs and so I think it's multi-sensory he's drawing on all these things because art is really um It gets us to think when we're thinking with all of our senses and when he's utilizing all of these art forms.
0: It's so powerful because when I I think that with the way Shakespeare is taught, or at least the way I maybe perceived it in high school, you think of it as either an English thing or a theater thing. And so it's kind of there. And then it, yes, it has influences elsewhere, but you don't. I don't often think about how Shakespeare himself was influenced by music, and that that is such an integral part. Because, for example, we never try to in high school. We never try to sing any of that material or hear any of those recordings. Uh, so I'm interested. I, I guess as I go too to try and do a little more research and and try to find those productions where I could hear bits of those songs as inspiration and and that. So I guess my my next question would be thinking about just how much space Shakespeare takes up, I think, in our uh, experience of the English canon. I guess that's the best way to put it. Shakespeare is such a towering figure. I mean, I think about just my own desire to, to do Shakespeare at some point in my life as an actor. And there's so many great actors who have done him. I've done you know, his work before. And you just kind of, they're like, oh my goodness, how do I live up to that? Um, But the question I wanted to ask you is, in our time now, we're in 2021, I think there's a lot of discussion going on about how we can include more diverse people in the English canon um, so that maybe we're not solely, you know, reading Shakespeare material and Tennyson and Wordsworth and all, all these people. How do you feel about Shakespeare's inclusion in the canon? Do you feel that his place there, that maybe there's room for other people and maybe we can rely a little bit less on Shakespeare or perhaps, you know, was Shakespeare genuinely so incredible that he deserves to have his place there and there are other authors that we can maybe perhaps <laughs> cycle out? I don't know, I'm not asking this question the best way, but.
1: Yeah, no, I, look, I get, I get the, I think the heart of your question. <laughs> um, and it's, it's a really important one. Okay, so, I mean, first of all, are there, is there room for other authors? There has to be, absolutely. I mean, there there's no way around that. And I think, you know, so that's just like flat out, yes. Does that mean that Shakespeare should cycle out? I don't feel like I'm in a position to, to be dictating kind of material, like, for in perpetuity, okay? Right. <laughs> so I'll just say that. Like, like, these are really meaningful debates, and they're meaningful debates for faculty, and they're meaningful debates for students. And so... I do think that that students should have the ability to say, look, I want to navigate through literature differently. Okay, so, so in terms of like actually requiring that certain people absolutely have to be studied, I mean, I'll just say that I went in my undergrad degree at Smith College, the major was structured so that you had to take two out of three, Chaucer's, Shakespeare Milton, okay, so you had to pick two of those three, and the word on the street was that Milton was this horrible misogynist, so I took Chaucer and I took Shakespeare as my two requirements, and I loved my professors, and they were great classes, but guess what, I teach Milton now all the time, mm-hmm. and so the thing about it is how is it being taught okay, so question a is what should be on a syllabus, but then question B is how is that syllabus taught? How is that material taught okay so to get back to um to so Shakespeare, what I would say is that, because uh, this is something that I think even now in the English department we're wrestling with like, what is our curriculum going to look like? Should we require literature before 1800? Um, sh- you know, is that important? And I guess what I would say is that I have a lot of colleagues nationally who are really working on questions of, say, race and Shakespeare, like colleagues of color. And there has been just really, really important conversations about Shakespeare's moment as one in which we see um, the beginnings of the slave trade, we see the beginnings of colonization, we see the 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 kind of moment at which things are beginning to, in terms of systemic racism, in terms of, of race-based thinking, like this is a moment to interrogate and Uh, this is also a moment of the construction of whiteness and kind of what that means, Hmm. kind of culturally. And so looking at, at how that happens is important, particularly as some of my medievalist colleagues say, when you have, say, white supremacist iconography that draws on medieval, you know, materials from medieval England. Interesting. It's really important to have people who say, actually... You know, medieval England was not um, monochromatically white. White was something that was under construction in these ways. And what was happening with people of color in the medieval period? I guess it's just to say that I... I feel like precisely at the moment where there are more and more scholars of color and particularly Black Shakespeareans who are really writing super cutting edge materials that now I am incorporating in my syllabi. Like I personally would find it tragic to then shut down that conversation. So there's a collective, for example, if any of you listeners are interested, called Race Before Race. And it's like B as in the letter B and four as in a four. Race Before Race. It's a consortium where there's like a Twitter feed that you can follow and there are conferences. And it's just an ex- it's an extended conversation about race and shakespeare and like i have a another colleague joyce mcdonald who's at the university of kentucky who just gave a super amazing talk called making shakespeare black that's about the long tradition of black actors black writers activists kind of drawing on shakespeare so you know i feel like my responsibility is just to to make sure that i teach this material to my students so there isn't a sense of like say, okay, I'm a white Shakespearean, like that I have some final word on Shakespeare, or this is the way you have to read Shakespeare.
0: It's, it's interesting. There's a wonderful video, uh, I think that the Royal Shakespeare Company put out, in which the actors in a recent production of Othello, actually, along with the historian, asked the question, is Othello a racist play? And I thought it was a, a, a really nuanced conversation in which the actors both, it was very interesting, this particular production had both Othello and Iago and they were both played by black British men. So there was a very interesting discussion because I know Othello has, like, Iago kind of sometimes making these somewhat racially charged comments at Othello throughout oh, the totally. play. And Othello, as, as you said, is sort of like an outsider, too, in terms of, like, the Venetian, like, that whole, the whole culture. He seems to be, like, the outsider as a Moor. And so there's this sort of debate about whether or not the conception of whiteness and blackness existed in his time when he had written that. So the historian was sort of commenting on on whether or not our conception of race today would have been similar to Shakespeare's conception of race. It was a very nice discussion in which the actors too, I think, felt like they had agency to say, it was really interesting, the actor who played Othello actually said, I I shied away from this role because of my view of this play and then but now that I'm doing it um I still feel sometimes very hesitant about certain things but I decided by putting my own take on this that I could make this a little bit less problematic and make this feel like there's some agency in Othello's role as opposed to him just kind of being a product of a a black stereotype which I just thought was very very complex and nuanced it was really interesting to watch
1: so that I think you're. I think it's the Adrian um, Lester, Lester, Hugh Corshi production. That's right. And um, and so yes, that conversation is available, like for your listeners if they want to pull it up because it is really moving. And um, Adrian Lester was then in conversation with the actual the woman who formed the Race Before Race um, consortium that I was just referencing. Her name's Ayana Thompson. And so they had at the annual like it was the World Shakespeare Congress that took place in Stratford. And they had a conversation at, I think it was like either the Swan or one of the other theaters that um, touched on many of the things you just drew out, which is historically, Othello is a play in which, for some white Shakespeareans, at least this is how I understand it, because I wasn't there at like this notorious um, meeting of the Shakespeare Association of America, in which a, a white, Academic was basically saying this play is not about race, and and some people were like, but it is about race. Like the, <laughs> these the metaphors are racialized. Like there's this structural racism in the play. Like this play is all about race. And they're and right. it's like no, that's anachronistic. It can't be about race. And so that's what I mean about how do you teach this material, whatever the material is, right? How do you teach it? And so to say to a student, for example, you can't study race in Shakespeare because it's anachronistic, or you can't, there is no black Shakespeare. When, when Ira Aldridge was one of the most famous Shakespeare actors who played all of these different key roles and went to Europe and became very, you know, just a really well-known celebrity, there is black Shakespeare, right? So, so but if, and that's, I think, what people are prying apart is, are you just gonna never produce Othello? Are you gonna produce Othello in a certain kind of way? Are you going to teach Othello, you know, never because the play or for me, like this question comes up with both Othello and Merchant of Venice. Like these are plays that that are about racism and anti-Semitism. Are they teaching it or are they interrogating it? You know, I and that's up to, yeah. to me as the professor to help navigate that without telling my students there's one right answer.
0: OK, I see Because my next question was going to be. Is are we seeing a reinterpretation of Shakespeare in a way that allows us to, to to work on this material and study this material, or are we looking at Shakespeare in his time also having a conversation like the one we're having that's maybe more liberal? Um, I guess the maybe I'll draw an analogy to to religion because I can speak on it in terms of Hinduism. Me and my mom have this discussion a lot because I'm very. I'm less religious than she is, though I have a lot of respect for the Hindu tradition and a lot of respect for the Hindu religion as a whole. and I, I was raised in it. Um, I think that we have a little bit of a different perspective. Maybe my mom's even not my mom is also quite liberal. Maybe I would talk to my my grandmother and say, I would talk about maybe some Hindu piece of scripture that would talk about women in a certain way. And I would just say, I think that this is wrong. Like this is no this is just not applicable. Like we should not be talking about women in this particular way like they should not have to abide by these ridiculous rules etc cetera, etc cetera. and my grandmother would say something like well no that's just the interpretation of the scripture like that that's just a bad interpretation of it and i would say no, no no it's not a bad interpretation it's bad scripture like the writing itself i feel like is not correct um and so i always have this debate about whether it's poor interpretations of shakespeare or, or maybe not poor, but different interpretations of Shakespeare, or the text itself is infected with enough of this problematic material that it no longer can be taught?
1: Well, yeah, you've, you kind of asked like a million-dollar question there, really. Because, of course, as a Shakespearean, right, it would be tempting for me to say that Shakespeare is this kind of all-knowing, kind of uh, politically right-on figure who is, of course, any part of the— This is what happens with the the Bible, too. People can say, well, there are parts of the text that are kind of uncomfortable. Like, I don't feel like, you know, I want to go off and kill my neighbor because they did something to an animal. Um, Right. And so what you say is, well, that's an allegory. So you read allegorically or you read differently. You say it's a symbol or it's an interrogation. or And so it's exactly like right what your grandmother might have said. Um, <laughs> and And then you're like, but I'm looking at the words on the page and they're actually quite uncomfortable. And so yes. I do think that's why it's a million dollar question, because, for example, I know for me, like with The Taming of the Shrew. Okay, The Taming of the Shrew is a play in which this woman, Kate, is like married and then she refuses to kind of bow to her husband's will and so she's tormented and imprisoned and denied food and, you know, and then eventually she arguably capitulates and she has this kind of speech in which she's down on her knee and she's kind of saying like, "Um, my husband is so worthy. Okay, so when I learned that play, it was in high school, when my high school teacher said, all of the girls in the class will memorize Kate's capitulation speech.
0: Lord have mercy. And
1: all of the boys will memorize something from Julius Caesar that was no doubt like bellicose and whatever. And so <laughs> yeah, right. Um, this is part of the reason why I never wanted to be a Shakespearean is I was like, that was my experience of Shakespeare is memorizing Kate. Okay, so for me... To approach that play now, even though I always say, oh, well, actually, he's doing a bunch of other things, I still have this vestige of the way I was first taught it, which is this is a play about the necessary subservience of women. Now, uh, you know, so if somebody says to me, well, the way I was first taught a play like Othello was that um, it, it somehow made me feel as though this was justifying the systemic racism that surrounds me. Like, if I had a student say that, like, that is a legitimate point of view. Like that, so that's why I say, I don't know that I can have a straightforward answer, but but that is where I think having, it's very important to me as a professor to make it clear, whatever it is that the text itself is saying, to make it clear if that is misogynist or that is racist or that is anti-Semitic, like to say, what is going on here? Um, and I do get to a point with certain plays, like this semester I'm actually not teaching Othello because I'm kind of redesigning a syllabus in which it would be then surrounded by um, either criticism of the play by scholars of color I particularly admire, and there are many, or writings by people of color like this literary. So that, you know, I just felt like this... This is a moment where I don't want to be a white professor apologizing for some, for Othello as this really, this play that has real racist scripts in it. Right. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like to it, it, I mean, in my view, I think it also treats the students like adults where it's like, look, you are going to engage with this material, and yet we provide the context that you need to understand like what this means or, or what this could mean, and then you can make your own determination on it, which I think is is very appropriate in the sense that I think it's, it's I was talking with a friend of mine, that it's also important to, to read things that are anachronistic or racist just to know that, oh, wow, that's the way things were written back then too. Um, and in the same vein, you also can find yourself to be remarkably surprised, I think, by how forward thinking certain pieces of Shakespeare can be. And that's where I was really shocked in that there were some pieces of text that I would pick out from Richard that when you just look at them, and it's in your book as well, because you wrote a book for, you know, art and Shakespeare about Richard III, and you talk about how that play lends itself to discussions of authoritarianism and totalitarianism you know and these regimes in the modern world some of the pieces of like richard's sort of soliloquies can just be taken verbatim and just stuck in 2021 and it's just shocking how relevant it is
1: totally totally so in the same way that that certain shakespeare plays like we were talking about othello could be about the or or in the case of merchant of venice can be about the like construction of um how does white supremacy reconstitute itself all the time like how is it so flexible to keep moving but then you get exactly a play like Richard III and suddenly it's like I'm still waiting for a version of Richard III that creates it as like a political allegory around 2020 (laughs) and um and that election or like 2016 to 20 and that administration because you're exactly right it's like Richard III is so often cast in A kind of modern moment so here he is like in a the Ian McKellen production produces him as like a kind of Hitler Mussolini figure that's like a brilliant brilliant staging of Richard III and then there's a um a Kuwaiti production by that then is made into a documentary by um Suleiman al Bassem in which Richard is is uh, Saddam Hussein, and that's a really powerful production. And so, no, you're right. It, it's so malleable.
0: It's so funny. You know, I, I think a lot about a lot of people have pointed to Obama making fun of Trump at the White House Correspondents Dinner as a turning point for when Trump decided he wanted to run for president. I, now, I don't know if this is true. It's just it's just one of those things that happened that I think everyone points to that particular event. And it really makes me think of the opening monologue from Richard. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this sun of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments our stern alarums changed to merry meetings, our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war had smoothed his wrinkled front, and now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. But I that I'm not shaped for sportive tricks, nor made to court an amorous looking-glass. I, that am rudely stamped and want love's majesty to strut before a wanton ambling nymph. I, that am curtailed of this fair proportion, cheated of feature by dissembling nature, deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world, scarce half made up, and that so lamely and unfashionable that dogs bark at me as I halt by them. Why I, in this weak, piping time of peace, have no delight to pass away the time unless to spy my shadow in the sun and descant on mine own deformity. And therefore, since I cannot prove a lover to entertain these fair well-spoken days, I am determined to prove a villain. And hate the idle pleasures of these days. Deformed, unfinished, sent before my time into this breathing world. Like he's, he's so, you know, he's rebelling against nature for what nature has done to him. What is it? I'm determined to prove a villain. Yes, right? He says. Yes. Because he says, I... I I, because nature has done this to me and because I cannot entertain these farewell spoken days I'm determined to prove a villain and hate the idle pleasures of these days And so it just reminds me a lot of like that Trumpian moment when Trump's like, okay Everyone's making fun of me. It's time to run for president now. I, it's not a direct parallel, but it, it it kind of it works It's very odd
1: And the use and I must say the use of religion, right? So remember how in the play Richard comes out and he's, he's like propped by two bishops and he's holding a Bible, but it's completely staged. And so he, he says like, Oh, I'm, I was back there praying, you know? Um, it's it, so, Oh, are you really going to force me into this? Well, I guess there's a power vacuum. I need to step up, but you know, it's, it's just this engineered sort of, um,
0: Oh my goodness. I had not considered that. That's a whole nother level. <laughs> wow. Uh, well, so actually, just as a, as a little tangent, I was wondering if you 'd be willing to tell the the Lester Car Park story about Richard because I feel like this the situation of like discovering richard 's body is like just a, a a wild, wild story
1: yes, okay, so um, this is one of my my favorite parts of the story is that and this speaks a little bit to what you were just saying about um, the allegory and maybe is, does it relate to two thousand and sixteen but one of the things in in Richard III that you might remember is that there's the character of Margaret who's this weird prophet, you know, I don't want to say weird, she's a prophetess who everybody derides. And they're like, here she is speaking about the future. And, okay, so, and the play teaches us, like, don't ignore Margaret because everything she says at the beginning comes true. Okay, so in the story of Richard III and his body in the Leicester car park, there's a woman um, who says, I got a really weird feeling in this um, car park. It's a council car park, okay? So it's owned by the the council, the town yeah. council. It's like
0: a parking lot, and, basically.
1: Yeah, it's a parking lot. It's a parking lot for, like, it would be like the DMV parking lot, okay? So she's like, I got this really funny feeling this DMV parking lot. And um, people are like, yes, okay, and could you please leave my office? I don't don't want to hear what you have to say. And so she goes off and she manages to fundraise, which is in itself quite extraordinary. And she then comes back, I think, with this money and is like, look, I have the money to dig up your parking lot. And she gets the planning permission and again it's like everybody I think has to be looking at Margaret even when I show the documentary um in class people are like you've got to be kidding me like nobody nobody took her seriously did like, they
0: w- yeah right she walks in the car park and she feels like Richard the Third's body is under is like is at the car park like this is and this is in modern times this is when the 2015 this, ish, this is like
1: yeah 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 like twenty twenty fourteen, 2014 something like that <laughs> I think 2013 actually um and, and so, yeah, she's, it's like being in a parking space. It's like I'm in space 213 in the, in the parking lot of the DMV. And get, I got a really funny feeling that there's a body under here um, <laughs> that, by the way, is like, you know, from 1400. And so, um, or sorry, not, not 1400, but um, 1499. So I, here's this very, very old body. And so they dig. Okay, it's crazy. The first day the first dig of the first day they find his skeleton okay so the thing is that for a long time there's this debate about whether or not he actually had the deformed skeleton that um or the frame that is alleged in the shakespeare play right so when he says i'm sent into this world deformed unfinished uh scarce half made up when he says that and he's pointing at his frame and he talks about his withered arm A group called the Richard III Society has long said, well, that's actually untrue. This is propaganda. This is part of lampooning Richard III and Mm. talking about what a horrible ruler he was. He didn't actually kill the princes that Richard III Society says. He actually was a brilliant fighter, the Richard III Society says. So (laughs) when they pull up the skeleton, they can see that it actually has this scoliosis, this super intense scoliosis.
0: That's wild. And
1: then they are able, because now we have carbon dating, to actually test the bones and make 100% sure that um, this in fact was Richard III. And furthermore, there is a descendant of Richard III, a living descendant of Richard III. Oh wow! Um, you know, many like removed, sure. not like direct descendant, but on the side. So with DNA, so they could take a DNA sample. To any, do you, any any people out there um, wanting to guess who that descendant is? Do you know, sir? No, no, I don't know. Benedict Cumberbatch.
0: No, really?
1: Yeah, for real.
0: That's insane. For real.
1: So, if you watch <laughs> The Hollow Crown, he actually is plays Richard the Third. Okay, so they, t- you know, so Benedict That's madness. Cumberbatch. It's total madness. It's total. Shakespeare couldn't have even written it himself. It's so amazing. Okay, so. So basically this like modern day Margaret is this prophetess who feels something in a parking lot. It leads to the discovery of Richard's body, which then leads to like Benedict Cumberbatch being kind of conscripted into the whole Richard Third scene with playing in the hollow crown. And he comes to the internment of the body at Leicester Cathedral, which previously had been like a kind of under visited cathedral and now is like one of the best visited cathedrals in all of England because they have this magnificent Richard the Third Visitor Center that I made a trip to. <laughs> and you can see the dig. You can I mean it's it it, it you couldn't even come up with this. It's like defies imagination.
0: Yeah, that's that's such a wild story. I don't even know what to do with it. It's it's so crazy. So I had this this question for you about just the humanities as a subject in collegiate life. So, I, you know, right now with COVID, I, I've been reading some stories about how different universities, because they're having a lot of issues with funding, um, are sort of jettisoning their humanities and arts subjects because they're considered to be you know, less employable or they're there's less of a, like, you know, incompetential in these subjects. And of course, I think in general, as a country, we're sort of thinking about competing technologically with the rest of the world. So there's a lot of emphasis put on STEM. And it's not that that emphasis shouldn't be there, but it just makes me sort of think very critically about what it is that we're, we're doing uh, in terms of our education. Because I felt that, you know, me being an art student and studying a lot of humanities subjects, I found them to be incredibly valuable and also really, really important. I was reading this text by this economist, John Maynard Keynes, about, uh, he has an essay called The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren. And in that essay, he talks about, or his term, technological unemployment, the idea that there's going to be automation, and we're going to have so much productivity just from machines that we'll no longer need to, you know, really run them, and they'll just keep running themselves, and scarcity sort of goes away. And what do we do with our time? And he was a big proponent of, the arts and the humanities. He was really, really connected to that. And I feel like in some ways we're kind of going in the opposite direction. We're entering this phase where automation is just sending these jobs away and then we have nothing to sort of fill the space. But I wanted to get your perspective on what you see as the state of the humanities in college and I guess make a case for why they're valuable as well.
1: There's a lot in that question. One way of approaching the question is just a, a kind of statistical one. like. People going to med school, people going to law school, people who are going to like into very discreet professional careers, like what are their majors? And it's still the case that the majority, surprisingly, okay, it really does surprise me, but are English majors. And so that I think in part because the English major or say narrative studies or Um, comp lit like a, a kind of literature or or more broadly speaking humanities major can be a way of suggesting skills as a writer and speaker and that those pretty much regardless even as a surgeon it's a good idea to know how to communicate with people so you know there's the professional argument which is what's your job gonna be and what's gonna best train you for it? And I guess that I wouldn't take some of the humanities out of the running for the kind of skills-based material that you need or one needs going forward into different jobs. But I think your question is really a bigger one, which is about the whole life. Like, what does our life look like? What is it that gives us kind of pleasure or meaning? What stamp are we creating on the world? Like when i look back at you know say 1600 like what survives
0: hmm. well
1: the arts you know the arts is is part of what survives it's part of what's meaningful it's part of how we engage with past cultures and how the future will engage with us so to kind of write that off as somehow not making money because i think that's partly what we're talking about you know we're talking about like is the value of life a cash value or is the value of life something else? And I think that that there's something that is really heartbreaking about being told that the value of life is a, a kind of GDP, right, um, for your household. Like that's it's heartbreaking because I see it with a number of my students who are. A real I understand it. it it's college is very expensive there's real debt there is an of course, like a necessity to be thinking practically about things, but I think that to the extent that people are siloed in very discreet professional careers where there's no sense of movement I, I think depression anxiety i mean these are kind of familiar phenomena now and mm-hmm. and I suppose. I like to think that the humanities has something to teach us about a a kind of a life that's like, I actually, I jokingly, my son is seven Hmm. and there, his school has a lot of STEM because they're always like STEM, STEM. And I think, you know, I hear this and, 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 I was about to be a math major. It's like, I love the science. It's not that this... But on the other hand, I think along with it is this is a practical choice. Like, let's train the future generation of worker bees right. in their own way. And so I've read... He's like, what does STEM stand for? And I was always like, science, technology, engineering, math. And I, okay, I got so tired of it. I now tell him it stands for... Science, theology, English literature, and music. So, <laughs> so I'm just like, that's what STEM is in our household. It's just amazing. Like, protest enough already. Yeah, that's yeah. So I'm like, I'm just a one woman protest. I'm like, just don't be giving me this acronym as like the key to all mythologies.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as as you were uh, talking about earlier, the the scientists that we sort of revere from the past were artists in their own right more often than not or um, many of the the people who came up with sort of like just physics later on were very well-read people and when I actually like have read interviews and they talk about what inspires them the arts inspires them I mean it's kind of the the whole point of my podcast I think is that the art intersects with all of this stuff the same way technology does and yet we don't necessarily talk about the arts that way Every person, from the time they wake up to the time they go to sleep, interact with the concept of art, whether it's through design or music or architecture or literature. They interact with the arts world as much as they interact with their computer or their cell phone. So going off that, I, I wanted to ask you about the different places that that you sort of find yourself in. Because you're not only a scholar, but also a writer in your own right, and you've written these books about Shakespeare and about the Renaissance era. So tell me, what is your own artistic process like when you have to do your own writing, Uh, especially when you're referring to these texts? How do you get inspired? How do you think about setting, you know, sitting yourself down and writing 200 pages worth on whether it's Richard or this book that you have about addiction in uh, the Renaissance times?
1: So there are different points of the writing process. One is the kind of the big ideas part. And that, for me, is always in dialogue with generally something that I'm thinking about now, which again is something that I particularly love about Shakespeare, but it's true of of much of early modern literature, and it might be true of any period of time that I was studying. But for me, I will just say, you know, I was very interested in um, ideas of executive power, particularly after 9-11 and the rise of, um, you know, Homeland Security, the TSA, the Patriot Act, Um, the idea of like how many civil liberties will be compromised in the name of security. And so it got me thinking about treason historically. And in Shakespeare's day, there was a terrorist plot called the gunpowder plot in which people plotted to to blow up the parliament building. And so it had some resonances. And I really began from having engaged for quite a long time with Macbeth and the gunpowder plot. But it was really that kernel of thinking about the moment I was in through then Shakespeare that became the kind of engine for that book. And then, which is my first book, which is called Treason by Words. And and similarly, I think with addiction, it was something that I came to partly through archival material because the gunpowder plotters were accused of, of being addicts which i thought was so weird because that wasn't really a concept that was supposed to have existed back then Hmm. so i'm always interested in this idea of like it can't have existed back then you know like really really there was no addiction so then i started on that but it also then was very much in conversation with the war on drugs and the idea of you know particularly the the race prejudice that drives the war on drugs and the the laws and the sentencing and so that then be, uh, part you know partly that partly the opioid crisis so I guess I'll just say there's always something that's a kind of now that then is in dialogue with then and that is part of the inspiration okay but I'll say the other thing is that the beauty of certain sentences in Shakespeare is the other thing that really kind of helps fuel me and gets mm. me going so like I often find in Shakespeare there are these moments of like real um plot tension around like say the murder of Duncan or um Clarence's murder in Richard the Third, and the play will suddenly slow down like it's hit honey or molasses and we suddenly have this beautiful sentence of like the multitudes sees seas incarnadine we hear when when um Macbeth is talking about, like, can I wash the blood off my hands? Mm-hmm. And he's like, no. Um, and, and so then I often will just find myself thinking about the sentence, like what is happening with this sentence and why is it? Const- and then from there, things will unfold. So there's a kind of push and pull between the big ideas and then what's essentially like sentence level observations about the circulation of a word. Like what is the word addict doing in Twelfth Night? Like why is it there? And and so I'll just start to tug on that. Or a addict is in Othello, like why? Um, why does he say each to his own addiction when each person gets to go off and have a good time when the ship turns out to be like safe? That's part of the the pleasure I guess of that, of the text is that it's so rich. like. I was just teaching something about time in Macbeth and time and succession. And I feel like it could have been like a 30-hour class. You know, it just could have kept going. And it, I think I'd mentioned to you that when I write, particularly when I'm really hoping to write like good sections, I always have my music. I always have like, The Brandenburg Concerto. It's like the Bach is what I can write to.
0: That's so interesting to me because it's um, the exact opposite for me. I cannot listen to music if I'm doing anything else because my ear just goes right there and then I'm stuck.
1: Well, of course it should. I mean, you're a musician and I think I mentioned to you that, you know, my husband is a, a producer. He has his own jazz label and he produces jazz records. And so I'm sure he would find it like deeply insulting if I put on like one of the records he's produced and labored over and I'm just having on as like quote unquote background music (laughs) but that's why I like the art in all its forms idea because I my experience of like listening to the Brandenburg concerto like probably now thousands of times (laughs) while I'm writing is not that I'm ignoring it I think it actually is there's a part of my brain that is listening to it that is actually then quieted by the experience of being satisfied in hearing this. And it keeps me from the kind of like physical discomfort, say, or distractibility. Like, I don't know how to describe the experience, except that I know that there's part of me that's really listening to it attentively. And there's the other analytical part of me that is then freed up to actually do the writing. And so I kind of have a question for you. Actually, this is a little bit turning the tables, but it's related to something that you had said you were interested in, which is um, the meter in Shakespeare. Okay. Oh
0: yes, I'm so glad we, so we got to that. So Shakespearean yes,
1: meter is iambic pentameter, and so you know bum 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 bum. So it's it's iams, which is like unstressed stressed dun-dun, and then it's five of them penta, pentameter. So. English uses iambic pentameter. And, and this is what Shakespeare writes. This is what Marlowe writes. And people say the reason that they write in iambic pentameter is because it is the meter that best represents the way that English sounds. And also people say that the reason that say like both Marlowe and Shakespeare most frequently use what's called blank verse, which is unrhymed iambic pentameter is because again that is the the kind of most clean poetic representation of the rhythms of speech in english so if you contrast that to say italian the rhyme scheme or the the um the meter that dante boccaccio petrarch writes in it's terza rima and terza rima is a rhyming verse stanza that has iambs, but it's in triplets. So it's da-dun, 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 and it's often rhymed. And so one of the things that people say is that that is more like Italian, that it's a shorter line, and that rhyming is very typical and easy in Italian and so this then becomes a problem if people are translating petrarch into english if you keep the rhymes that can sound in english like doggerel because people have limericks where they're like there once was a man from tantucket who only could say whatever where's my bucket um so <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when we have that kind of rhyming it sounds um again like doggerel or like um, limericks or like child's nursery rhymes so in other words languages it seems have beats and they have typical patterns and so i'm really fascinated to talk to a drummer about how you see the kind of language of drumming like is it specific is it culturally specific is it linguistically specific is it universal like what how does that work
0: if you would like to talk to someone, I'll, I'll put you in touch with exactly who to talk to about this uh, at USC. Uh, it's so funny that, that you bring this up. I think, a lot, I think about this story that um, one of my professors told me. Uh, his name is Aron Serfati. He's one of the, the jazz drum set professors. Um, <clears throat> and his specialty is a lot of Latin American music and Cuban music. And Ven- cause He's from Venezuela originally. One of the most interesting stories he told me was about going to Finland to hear Cuban music. And he said that you would think that because it's sort of Europe very far removed from Cuba, that they wouldn't be particularly like good at playing Cuban music. And in general, my teacher's a real stickler for like people doing their homework when it comes to the authenticity of the music. So he's not necessarily like it has to be done a certain way, but he, because he has such an ear for it, he knows when someone has really paid attention to it or not. And he said that he went to Finland and he heard one of the best bands of all, almost all Finnish people playing Cuban music. And he was so shocked by it. He was just like, I don't understand how this happened. And then when he heard the people speaking Finnish to each other, he realized it was because the language itself was very similar or like lent itself to Cuban rhythms.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: And I just thought that was, it was really stunning to hear. Cause And he sort of did a little, whatever imitation he could of the language to make it clear that this is very very similar to the way that Cuban rhythms sort of end up in the band and when you like stack it all up together and then you hear the language itself you realize oh wow this is actually quite similar and that's why he felt that these Finnish band members were able to understand the Cuban music in a way that was more authentic than an English speaker might on first glance. Wow,
1: that is so interesting.
0: It's it's wild I I even in modern times, we were talking about this in the pre-show that Aaron Sorkin, when you hear interviews of him talking about why he writes the way he writes with this really rapid dialogue, like back and forth, that he feels like he hears the music of the various lines, that it's not just the the content of the English of like what it actually means, but it's the sound of the words coming out of the actor's mouths that is pleasing to him. And that's why he writes like that. It's, it's tough because like when I first sort of glanced at the idea of iambic pentameter when I was in high school, it, it never was apparent to me how important or vital it, it is. Um, partially because I think at that point, you know, when you're that young, you're just struggling to understand what is being said and you spend most of your time just trying to think about what, what is he saying? What do these, what do these words mean? Uh, but once you get past that, you realize that the rhythm itself is, is so important. Um, as it is in music, and it in, in many ways, it I think that's why so much music is inspired by Shakespeare because the Shakespearean language itself lends itself to that to those musical elements because it's in verse.
1: Well, and I think music in turn trains us to maybe, if not consciously, but to subconsciously hear the offbeats in Shakespeare because, like, if we're listening mm. to something in music and we suddenly have like something that's like. Out of rhythm. It's very obvious, I think, to at least to me, or to, I think to somebody, yeah. and certainly to you, right, to an actual musician. But it, that part's very clear. You're like, oh, something went wrong, or oh, the the composer did something, or oh, he, you know, this is a, a transition moment, right? But I think that that we, it's po- possible to have that capability listening to Shakespeare. But even I, as like somebody who's been reading and listening to Shakespeare for so long, I don't always, I think, consciously register. Those moments when a character is tripping up on the iambic pentameter, that the iamb has been distorted, you know, Mm. that there's an extra foot, say, in the line. But almost without fail, like when we analyze those moments, say, in class, like Lady Macbeth saying, you know, unsex me here, like that speech is filled with trippings like trippings of extra feet around words like you murdering ministers. Okay, that's a, a Macbeth thing. So it's like all of the words that are really uncomfortable, like minister or heaven or soul, like there's tripping. And I, I think that that's the beat. The beat is teaching us to maybe be suspicious or wary, even if we don't consciously notice it. We feel it, which is really cool.
0: I don't think I can think of a better note to end this on. Professor, it was so wonderful to talk with you and to, to hear more about Shakespeare and to, and to get your perspective on all of this. So thank you so much for, for talking with me. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real blast.
0: You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forums, the podcast and the newsletter at artinallitsforms.substack.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on any of your favorite podcast apps. And if you want to send us a question or comments or concerns, uh, please email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's aiaifpod at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.